Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Esther. Since I will uh, cover all the verses in chapter 1 and chapter 2 during the sermon, I won't read all of that uh, beforehand. Uh, We are continuing, really, a a study in the providence of God, started with a four-part sermon series in the book of Ruth, which, by the way, I think provoked at least one engagement in our midst, right? Praise the Lord for that. If you don't know, you'll get your newsletter soon and you'll find out. Uh, The book of Ruth is a, a lesson in providence, but the book of Esther also is a lesson in providence. Now, it's different in that... It comes uh, with a more general treatment, and we look at events that, uh, without all the details that we have in the book of Ruth, but it again is a lesson in God's providence. Providence being very simply his uh, interaction with his creation, moving all things together for his good. Uh, Things are predestined by the Godhead, and then God personally moves. He's not predestining things and then standing back indifferently, but rather he is personally moving things for his glory, and our good, those who are united to him by faith in Christ. And in particular, we have the providence uh, revealed of his redemptive plan to keep his promise to send a Savior, even despite the evils that assail his covenant people in this book and in other places. This is God's providence at work. Now, I realize for many, as you open the Old Testament, uh, much of this is foreign to you. Uh, Maybe when you came to faith, you started reading the New Testament right away. That was my story. In fact, it wasn't until I got into college and actually surveyed the Old Testament that I understood how it all came together. So before I read the first few verses of of chapter 1 as our scripture reading, I want to bring us into biblical context where this book is placed. Uh, Remember, the Old Testament starts with creation and the promise for a Savior after the fall of man in Genesis 3. Then in Genesis 12, Abraham is revealed as the individual God will use to build his covenant people initially with. Then from Abraham, we have Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. Joseph is left in Egypt in Genesis chapter 50, and the nation over a couple hundred years grows to two million people. That's when Moses comes on the scene. He is raised up out of Egypt to lead the people of God out of captivity, and they are given law. They are given God's law revealed to them in Exodus, and now you have God's people with the law clearly displayed for them. There's two million of them. They've been redeemed out of the hand of their captor. Now God gives them land. And Moses leads them to the brink of the promised land. Joshua takes them in. They take the land. They divide it up among the various tribes of Israel. And so you have the book, books of Moses, the first five books, now the book of Joshua. Then after this is the period of Judges, where they don't have a king, but they're in this period of time where Gideon and Samson and others are raised up to help the Israelites who keep falling spiritually to get out of their captivity, whether it be the Philistines or whoever taking them over, God would always rescue them, showing them their sin, reminding them of his covenantal faithfulness, their need to be covenantally faithful to him. And this period of the Judges is where the book of Ruth takes place. Well, after the period of the time of the Judges, God gives them their human king that they cry out for, that all the other nations have, and they get Saul. Saul is there, and we read the account, these accounts in First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles as it lays out now the kings of Israel and really Israel's dire spiritual state throughout. God always covenantally faithful, God's people constantly struggling to maintain faithfulness themselves. Always a faithful remnant that God keeps faithful, but also the, the larger picture you see God's people struggle. And under Sol- David and Solomon there was great glory, but after Solomon the kingdom divides. The northern kingdom, ten tribes known as the lost tribes of Israel, get taken captive by the power of that day, Assyria. And they're taken captive 
and assimilated into that culture. The southern kingdom, now called Judah, and you notice Judah, the promise of the Lion of Judah to come out, the Savior, is maintained. But they too fall into spiritual hardship by disobeying the covenant stipulations given by God. And the Assyrians were taken over by the Babylonians, and the Babylonians then were used of God to discipline his people, and, he t- and the Babylonians took captive Israel and spread out that nation. And Israelites were spread out all over. And you remember Daniel getting sent away and others getting sent away. And Israelites were no longer just in Palestine, but all over this new Babylonian kingdom. Then another partnership arises to take down Babylon. The Persians and the Medes get together and they take down Babylon and acquire Israel, who's already assimilated among them. They're a little more friendly to Israel than the Babylonians were. And under Ezra, they issue a decree that allows the Jews who are living throughout the various regions of Persia to go back and rebuild the temple. So they go do this. In fact, most scholars think that Mordecai, who is written of in the book of Esther, was one of the people who went back and helped build the temple in Ezra 2, verse 2. So that's where the book of Esther comes into play. The temple has been rebuilt back in Palestine, but there's still many Jews all around. And Susa, which is far north of Israel, that's where Esther is. She and her cousin Mordecai, who's taking care of her, live in Susa, the capital, where the king of all these 127 provinces provinces live, Ahasuerus. So that's the context where Esther, it really comes towards the end of the Old Testament chronology. So now, hear God's word, just the first three ver- or four verses of Esther 1. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces, in those day when, days when King Ahasuerus sat on the ro- his royal throne in Susa, the capital, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants, the army of Persia and Media, and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this wonderful account that comes from history, that involves your working among your people to preserve your people, even in the midst of of tribulation against them. And Lord, I pray that as we recount this story and look at its details, that we would not see it as a distant thing that cannot be applied, but rather for the one right now who is struggling with your providence, with understanding why things are happening. Lord, they may not have that answer immediately answered, but Lord, we can see that you are in control of these things and give us a new assurance of this as we see seemingly random events reveal your kingdom players for the purpose of bringing glory to yourself. Lord, may we praise you as a result of seeing what you do in this account. In Jesus' name, amen. Essentially, what we have in the book of Esther, in particular these first two chapters, is a, a group of seemingly random events being, uh, bringing all the necessary players in God's redemptive plan into human view. He's working to do the thing he promised he would do, bring a savior. And he works even the most uh, mundane details together, even using a despotic king to produce results that will ultimately bring glory to himself. I want us to look at this in three parts with three, three movements of these two chapters. King Va- or queen Vashti, the king's first queen, in her deposition, how she's deposed. Then also how Esther is selected as the new queen. And finally, how Mordecai, Esther's uh, cousin, is used to unravel or unfold, uncover a plot to assassinate the king. First, let's notice Queen Vashti 
and how she is deposed. In the first 22 verses, we have this. Look at the first verse, and we're introduced to the first major player in our story. Now, in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces. Ahasuerus is better known in Roman and Greek history as Xerxes. He ruled Persia some 500 years before the time of Christ. Ahasuerus inherited the kingdom from his father Darius. He himself did nothing to earn it. He had only been in his third, third year of his reign. It was of utmost importance for him as the son who took over this powerful kingdom to maintain its power and glory. In fact, this is why he throws the mother of all parties. Because he's trying to display to everyone the glory of the kingdom and his abilities as king. Also, keep in mind, the Greeks were on the rise in the west. The Greeks would be the next great kingdom that would come. Persia knew it. And Persia had to convince its people that they could take Greece should they come to a showdown. And they would. It was inevitable. That's how it worked in those days. And so, one of the biggest parties in history on record ensues. His, secular historians even note the revelry that this king, Ahasuerus, known as Xerxes, uh, what he was prone to in his days. Look at verse 2. In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the capital, in the third, uh, third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. Notice the Bible is always prone to understatement rather than overstatement. It's always understatement. And that's what we have here when it goes on to describe what this feast was like. I mean, a feast is like the, is like the pot providence dinner we have in Reformed Church. Not potluck, but pot providence dinners we have in church. That's a feast. What this is, the army of Persia and Media and their nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. Verse 4, while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days, 180 days of partying, all for the purpose of building morale and displaying his supposed power as the new ruler. The very pinnacle and climax of this six-month-long party was to show his ultimate power with a seven-day feast. I mean, it's all 180 days of public money funding revelry comes to a climax with a seven-day pinnacle of partying. Verse 4. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. Now notice what he brings out in decor. So everyone who comes can see his great splendor and gain confidence to take on the Greeks someday. Verse 6, there were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl and precious stones. Notice this, verse 7, drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. The key uh, to help you understand what this, these gold drinks and these gold cups signify, it means conquering. In fact, that was one of the things that tr changed hands with each new ruler that took over the last kingdom. So as Assyria took Israel, Assyria would take those kings and all their stuff and they would celebrate it as theirs now. They would plunder it and they would keep it. And then when the Babylon takes over Assyria, Babylon acquires Assyrians, Assyria's stuff and the kingdoms that they conquered. And so by the time you get to the Persians, they've got a whole cabinet full of all the different cups 
that are made of gold from conquering kings showing their splendor and power. So as he used these as common cups for people to drink out of, as you're drinking, you're recognizing, hey, this is an Assyrian cup of circa 600 A.D. This is amazing. I mean, if the antique roadshow could see this thing, this is from Assyria. And so all these cups would display the great splendor, uh, just a subtlety that shows us how big a party this was and what it was trying to communicate. Verse 8, and drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion, for the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in a place that belonged to King Ahasuerus. Now, Queen Vashti is uh, this uh, queen who now also throws a party for the women. Uh, In the the custom of that day, they had separate partying uh, facilities for the men and for the women. They didn't intermingle. And so she also was throwing a huge party for the ladies. And the king's ultimate hope through all this 180 days and then the seven days of pinnacle uh, climactic celebration was to display his personal glorious king, Persia's splendor and power as the world's strongest nation. And you may think, well, this is shallow. It's not a military show. Realize this is part of the culture and part of the psychological warfare that would go on. And, and, and I don't mean this humorously. People always laugh. But you remember the guy in the middle of Baghdad that con- was in- convinced that they were winning the war when they were interviewing him while well, bombs are dropping behind him and the statue of Saddam is coming down? Now, this isn't just uh, pure uh, lunacy. Rather, this is a, a, a Middle Eastern mechanism of talking oneself into it. You even see it today. I mean, Hezbollah will say they win no matter what. It doesn't matter. They'll say they win. If Israel pulls out at all, they'll win. And this is really, by necessity, a way to keep the troops rallied because they've got no choice. They're being attacked. And they've got to speak positively. And they've got to speak in a way that makes people keep fighting to the end. Because unlike today, there's no Geneva Convention back then. There's no sending a Secretary of State to try to talk about getting humanitarian aid in. There's no such thing. When the Greeks come, they will kill them. That's what they're going to do. So if they're not fired up for this battle that's coming, they will lose all the more hideously. They know this because they did it themselves to the people before them, and that's what they did. So this is why they have this huge party to show splendor and pomp, and you think, well, that's not really a military display, but it's in their heads and it's in their hearts that they are to be this glorious nation that is moved by the divines to take Greece now and be the biggest kingdom that there ever was. Then enter man, his folly with too much wine. And what do you have? Look at verse 10. On the seventh day, mind you, brothers and sisters, the seventh day, the climax of this thing, the resounding thing that has to be in the heads of everyone when they go back to their place is what a guy Ahasuerus is. He's going to lead us to victory. The seventh day, I'm going to talk in the ninth inning here, the last out. When the heart of the king was merry with wine, trouble, trouble, trouble. He commanded Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abacatha, Zethar, and, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. Brothers, there's a lot of lessons we can learn from this. But we'll get there. There's all sorts of conjecture about what exactly Hashuharis was requesting. Something immodest of her? Probably. But even if, she, if, it, even if he wasn't asking her to do something immodest, but rather just model the crown and show her physical beauty, what right-thinking woman would walk into a group of all these men who are drunk and show herself in any fashion? She did exactly what she should have done. 
Uh, submission to husbands, one thing, but to do something that is probably sinful is not required of her. And she sends back, I'm not going to do it. Seven eunuchs come and tell. Most scholars think that each one in official form would have got up and said what her response was. Eunuch number one, she's not going to do it. Eunuch number two, she's not going to do it. Hesuerus is sitting here not believing what he's hearing. Eunuch number three, four, five, seven times it's displayed before all the crowd in this climactic moment that the wife will not come. She, he's stuck now in front of everyone. He's blown everything over this one selfish act. Verse 12, but Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command. And you can hear the women in the back, you go, girl. You don't go. Don't go to that. Can you believe she didn't go to that? And the word spreads immediately. I mean, like rapid fire across all the, the hall. Everyone knows that this hush, all this revelry, now this hush, this embarrassed silence. You know, it's embarrassing and humbling to have an argument with your spouse in public. But imagine, though, if you just spent six months of public money and revelry and celebration to show the leaders of the provinces that you, com- that you commanded your powerful status. You can move armies. You can move kingdoms. But you can't even get your wife to come when you ask her to. There's a lot of lessons here. Pride, first of all, leads to the opening of our mouths when we should not say anything. Because once we do, especially in a setting like this, can't take it back. Words are powerful. And pride is the number one cause of strife and division. And it causes us to say things that are foolish. And this is an example. Granted, this is a pagan king. But you know and I know that we say things that you can't just go back and say, I'm just joking. And it sets things in motion. And it, can, it can compound further sin when you try to cover yourself. And now we have that exactly happening. The snowball starting, starting to go down the hill and pick up speed. There's other lessons, though. Very clearly, let's be honest, the abuse of alcohol only heightens this likelihood. You put alcohol in the mix with anything, using too much of it, and this is what you have happen. It exacerbates anything that's under the surface. And God tells us clearly to be not drunk with wine. And the important thing to remember here is it takes us out of self-control, then, the the place we need to be for the Spirit's fruit to show itself, which is self-control. And so by getting drunk in this setting, by abusing this thing, this has further made the evil of his heart come forward in a way that he can no longer bridle or control. Ultimately, another lesson as you think of this wonderful uh, picture of a party and all the stuff that was in the party. Really, though, when you look at it and it all comes crashing down here in the seventh day, man's glory, even at its highest, highest point, always, always pales in comparison to the true glory of God. You could watch this party for six months, seven days, it all falls apart on the seventh day, look up at the stars once, and you see the glory of God. It's not diminished at all. The glory of man is a joke compared to the glory of God. The king is disgraced now and embarrassed at the very point that he should have been receiving the most glory, so he turns to his wise men, who clearly have some kind of agenda against the queen. We see this again. I don't know if she was hard on him or what, but look what is said in verse 13. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure towards all who were versed in the law and judgment, and the men next to him, being Karshina, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Miris, Marcina, and uh, Memukin, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. So something's going on in their mind. They see where he's at with this mentally. 
And what do they say? Almost like at the, top of their, at the tip of their tongue. According to the law, what is to be done with Queen Vashti because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs? So the king immediately goes to appeal to the law. He's going to sue his wife over this, essentially. Then Memekin said, in the presence of the king and the officials, not only, by the way, king, as if he weren't mad enough, now this guy says, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the people who are in the provinces of King Ahasuerus. As if it couldn't have been worse. Now verse 17. For the queen's behavior, this advisor says, will be made known to all the women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persian media who have heard of the queen's behavior will say the same thing to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. You know, if it, weren't, if it was not bad enough, it's just getting worse and worse. Verse 19, if it pleases the king, let a royal order go out from him and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it may not be repealed that Vashti is never again to come before the king. Notice when there's an edict that goes out, it cannot be repealed. When it goes out from the king, that's part of the Medes and the Persians, they say it's like from God. And so therefore, it's got to go out, it cannot be repealed. So let's make an edict like that, king, and we'll take care of her, and no one, no other woman in the kingdom will get any bright ideas. Verse 20, so when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout the kingdom, for it was, is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. Sure, right, that'll work. At any rate, that's what they thought. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. So if we had any thoughts that Ahasuerus had his head on straight and it's just the wine talking, this is well after the wine that they had to make these letters in all these languages as this edict is given. And now you have uh, this edict going out and Vashti publicly deposed. And let it be clear, Xerxes is not a man of mercy. He once had a whole team of construction workers beheaded because they built, they built a bridge that was wiped out by a massive ocean storm. And he had them beheaded publicly. This is not a nice guy. I know there's a VeggieTales version of this, which I'm not knocking completely, but Xerxes is not a big cucumber that's kind of lovable. Uh, he had people beheaded just because they bothered him a little. That's the picture that we have for us of this, of this king who has deposed his queen. Seemingly random events, including the rash actions and decisions of an inebriated, despotic ruler, bring all the necessary players in God's redemptive plan to light and into human view. Now let's enter the second movement of this first scene of the story, chapter 2, where we have Esther selected as queen. Verse 1, after these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, we know this could have been a few years actually after by basis of something that's said later, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. So it's almost as though he's getting fond memories of Vashti and thinking, oh, was it really that bad? And then immediately here come these advisors again in verse 2. Then the king's young men who attended him said, let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the capital, under the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given to them, and let the young women who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. So he forgot Vashti and said, that's an idea. Let's do that. And so 
the ancient version of Persian Idol, was born. And people came from all different provinces. Women were, were gathered up, uh, compelled to come, on, most likely, as they went. And this is where we have introduced to us two of the key players. Of the four key players in this drama, two more are now being introduced in verse 5. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jer, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish. By the way, these are not immediate ancestors. These are just the most notable of them. A Benjamite, verse 6, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives carried away with Jeconiah, the king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, carried away. So Mordecai's family came many years before after the Babylonian capture of Israel during the time of Jeremiah. Even though the temple had been rebuilt under, uh, uh, under the time, in the time of Esther and Ezra, many Jews like Esther and Mordecai still lived in the outer regions of Persia. Verse 7, we have introduction now to his cousin, his young cousin. Verse 7, he was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So Mordecai, the older cousin of Esther, watches over her as though she was his daughter. The text points out clearly that Esther was physically beautiful, making her a great candidate for this Persian beauty contest that would happen. Verse 8, so when the king's orders and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young, woman, and the young woman pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with cosmetics and her portion of food, and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace, and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Kings had the unsavory practice of keeping a harem of virgins close to their palace in order for them to be concubines eventually. One particular person was given charge of this whole, uh, this whole segment of his kingdom, uh, the virgins. In fact, we know from Josephus that Ahasuerus had at least 400 concubines kept in such a way. Esther is picked out among them, and we can only surmise it's based on her physical beauty. In verse 9, pleased him and won his favor, because all that's been spoken of is her physical beauty at this point. So she is picked out and given top seven status among all the women. And she's placed in a, in a place that's like a state house. Then verse 10, we learn something interesting about Esther's way of moving in life, if you will. Verse 10, Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. So we come to learn that Mordecai has some privileged status in the kingdom, probably a guard, most think, some kind of a guard. And he, for some reason, doesn't want her to express her nationality. Now, it could be just because there's such an anti-Semitism that we still see today among those in that part of the world that made him, just for her safety, say, don't tell people who you are. He doesn't tell her to lie. He just says, don't tell who you are unless, he doesn't say unless it's volunteered or asked for, don't volunteer it. But it's like Matthew Henry says so well, all truths are not to be spoken at all times, though an untruth is not to be spoken at any time. So Mordecai keeps her quiet. And it seems to be an interesting choice one could even question it. Jesus says, if you deny me before men, I'll deny you before the Father. Yet, in this time, it seemed prudent for Mordecai to instruct his young cousin this way. 
Verse 12. Now when the turn came for each woman to go into the king, into King Ashuharis, after being 12 months under the regulations for women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months, notice this, the regular period for their beautifying, six months with oil, myrrh, six months with spices and ointments. So brothers, don't get upset if your wife takes 20 minutes to get ready. This is a year, okay? And this is how long it takes uh, for them to get these women ready. And actually, antiquity tells us that the reason of this 12-month period is to make sure they weren't pregnant, that they were actually virgins. And during this time, in Persia in particular, they were known for all sorts of beautifying agents, ritualistic baths, plucking of the eyebrows, the painting of the hands and the feet, not just the toenails and fingernails, the hands and the feet. And also something unusually, uh, or, or something that's unique to the Persian uh, contribution to cosmetics was this kind of beautifying paste that they put all over their body that would lighten their skin and take out some of the blemishes that would be seen. Uh, but in the case of Esther, she doesn't appear to need a whole lot. If you look in verse 14 and following, we see this development. In the evening, she would go in, and in the morning, she would return to the second harem in custody of Shagaz, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her, and she was summoned by name. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter, to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. So she goes in relatively plainly. Now Esther was, that's an ongoing activity, was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tibeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. So Esther is selected as the new queen. And notice the text in verse 15. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. There really is no reference to her spiritual character, but instead that her physical appearance drew people's attention to her. I'm afraid that too many interpretations of the story give Mordecai and Esther undue credit for their supposed godliness. That's often how you hear this story portrayed. Be like Esther. Be like so-and-so is a common theme heard within evangelical churches. But the point of this book has nothing to do with lifting Mordecai or Esther up as examples or heroes. God uses them, gives Esther strength in an important time later in this book, but let's not go too far in making her the hero. She had no control over how she looked. God made that happen as part of his overall providential plan. That's how she gained favor. That's what the king saw. We're not talking about a terribly deep, deep individual here as it relates to the king. Esther is not the hero of this book. And we come as a shock as we start this, this great book. But I would also say to you, think about this now. Abraham is really not the hero of Genesis, nor is Isaac, Jacob, or Joseph. Really think about these guys in their life. Are they really heroes? Moses is not the hero of the Exodus. Joshua is not the hero of the conquest. The judges are not heroes for delivering Israel. King David is not the hero. Solomon is not the hero. Hezekiah is not the hero. The prophets are not the heroes. Ezra and Nehemiah are not heroes. Mary and Joseph are not heroes. The apostles are not heroes. 
There is only one hero of the Bible. It's the Lord who redeems, and he does through ultimately through Christ. That's the hero of every text. God is the hero. Esther is not the hero of this book. She's a frail, broken person who's good-looking. And she, because of God's providence, found herself in a place where God can use her. That's what's so strengthening for me. I'm not looking at her or Daniel or David or anyone else thinking, how do I be like them? Instead, I'm saying, wow, God used them for his redemptive glory. He could do it with me. He could do it with you. That's the real lesson that we get when we consider someone like Esther. We are not the heroes of our, of our lives. God's the hero of our life. The pastor is not the hero of the church. Public figures are not heroes. Sports figures are not heroes. Uh, entertainers are not heroes. The Lord God is the only one who is a hero. And if anyone has talent that's used, it's given to them by God and used hopefully for his glory, but always for his glory one way or another, to bring judgment that is due or to show and manifest his name in a good way. Seemingly random events, even a massive game of Persian idol conducted by a pagan king, bring all the necessary players in God's redemptive plan into human view. Finally, we see Mordecai uh, completing this, this opening scene, which sets the stage for what will follow. And so we're introduced uh, to, or we see, how he foils an assassination plot. Look at verse 19 as it, as it transitions in to this uh, knowledge that Mordecai uh, gains. Now when the virgins were gathered together a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. The only way he could be sitting near, sitting near the gate is to be an official of some sort. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people, so she's in the palace. She's a queen, still not revealed that she's Jewish. As Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. So things are a bit precarious. Uh, if he finds out that she's Jewish, what will happen? Well, something happens providentially that gives them a status that would transcend their ethnicity if it be known. Verse 21, in those days as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Big Than and Teresh two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. So you have the gate where the main guards would be. The threshold's inside the main gate before you got into the door of the, temp, uh, door of the palace. So those guys are high-ranking officials. They have immediate access to the king if they want to go through one door. So it's a very serious thing when they're saying, we want to knock off the king. Very serious. So Mordecai gains information, whether he heard it with his own ear or someone told him, hey, those two guys, you should hear what they're talking about. They were plotting to kill the king. Providentially, God allows Mordecai to understand this. He tells it to Queen Esther. Esther goes and tells it to the king in the name of Mordecai. This is key. When the affair was invested, investigated and found out to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows. And it was then recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. The book of the Chronicles was important again for Middle Eastern kings and Near Eastern kings. They would write down all their great things. They'd only write their great things. You're not going to read one of those with a lot of the bad things. It's all the great things they did. And if they were depressed, they would go back, much like we would look at a photo album of the glory days when I weighed 30 pounds less than I do now. That kind of thing. Well, actually, those depressed me. But at any rate, they would go back and look at these chronicles and say, man, look at what a good king I am and how great things, uh, great things that happened. So mark down here that we avoided uh, an assassination plot and... Mordecai, the good guard, he's the one who told me about it. And he puts it down in the Chronicles. Seemingly random events will lead us into our next sermon as we're introduced to the final main character. I believe one of the most villainous, 
characters in all literature, let alone the Bible. Haman, the Agagite. The stage for this redemptive drama is set. We've met Ahasuerus. We've met his Jewish queen who doesn't know or who doesn't uh, reveal that she is Jewish and he probably doesn't care. Met Mordecai, the guard in the king's court who happens to be Esther's uncle. Esther is granted great favor in the king's heart. And it is only multiplied and solidified beyond her ethnicity by informing him of an assassination attempt through the intelligence of Mordecai. And as we begin next week, let us remember seemingly random events, even a couple of thugs scheming an assassination attempt in the hearing of a guard, bring all the necessary players in God's redemptive plan into human view. Let us pray.